We got a lot to talk about today. Four to five. Ton on the agenda. So we'll get started with this right now. There's been something on my mind lately, and I decided I really wanted to open up the show with this, Sammy. The state of the NFL. And what do I mean by that? I'm scrolling down, and I'm looking through the standings. And to me, I see a common theme that's really concerning me. And it looks like the league is less of competitive but more of filled with holes on every team, if not multiple. Meaning that, when you really look at it, it almost looks like every team quote-unquote sucks. And as crazy as it is to say, when you take a deep look, even the best teams record-wise don't look that impressive. And then there's the teams at the bottom, which are historically terrible. And even some teams at the top don't just have holes, but they have significant holes, Sammy. So we're going to start quickly. I mean, I just want to talk first, specifically or most notably, about the Pittsburgh Steelers and Kansas City Chiefs, the two teams with the best records in football right now. And you go through their schedule, and I know people have been throwing around the word cakewalk, but I mean, we talked about this before the show and I called you. That is the definition of the cakewalk for not just Pittsburgh, but Kansas City as well. And look, there's people out there, and I agree to an extent, when they're like, hey, you know, they play the team on the schedule and they win. Good teams do that. And that's correct. They are two really good teams. I'm not saying they're bad teams by any means. But I have to say, Sammy, they're two of the least impressive teams with this record we've ever seen, particularly the Pittsburgh Steelers. And then you go down the list, you got teams like Seattle and, you know, teams like Green Bay who have their significant holes as well. I actually printed out the standings for myself. You look down this list. And, you know, you have Cleveland, who has subpar quarterback play, and they're sitting at 8-3. and three. Tennessee, who's had a rocky season, 8-3. and three. Um, Go on to the NFC. Green Bay, 8-3. and three. Great quarterback play, great offensive play, but the defense has been a little suspect. New Orleans, who really hasn't had good quarterback play all season, except for a couple of games, they're 9-2. and two. The Seattle Seahawks are 8-3 and three with one of the worst, historically terrible secondaries in NFL history. And they're eight and three. I mean, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? It might just be an observation. I might be going crazy in my head right now, but to me, there seems to be some sort of a a talent deficit in the NFL right now. Cole, you may be wrong, and you may not be actually, because when you look at it, I think a big part of this could be that there was a shorter preseason and shorter preparation and. Teams didn't really have time to prepare, especially the young uh, guys who just got drafted, per se, and the guys who went in free agency, and they haven't really got a chance to mesh with their new teams and everything. And as you know, in the NFL, there is so much turnover on the rosters from season to season that I think that could be a big reason why we're just seeing not the greatest of football. I mean, when you look at it, we see teams that are – 11 and 0 and teams that are 1 and 10 and I feel like and even the Jets who are winless when we look at the Jets Jaguars not playing very good football when we look at the Steelers and Chiefs they're playing not that great of football also but winning basically every game and I feel but like barely the Steelers that's the thing just... they're ba- they're barely winning these games in some of them and look at I mean look at Wednesday night I mean, they had Robert Griffin III in there and Trace McSorley, who is a meme on himself more than an NFL player, and they were barely able to beat them. Kansas City, I mean, they were going head-to-head with teams like the Carolina Panthers lately. I mean, and they barely held on to a lead against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers after completely destroying them in the first quarter. It's stuff like that that just gets me a little confused, you know. I'm ready to come out here and, and call Kansas City the lock of the year right now to win the Super Bowl, and most likely they're going to go walk to the Lombardi Trophy again. But then you look at their holes, and they really haven't had multiple impressive wins all season. It's crazy to me, Sammy. It's true. When you look at it, their defense, I feel like, has deteriorated a lot from last year. And also, as you said, we saw that great first quarter last uh, last week against the Buccaneers when Tyree Kill and Patrick Mahomes played phenomenal. But when we look at it, 
that's a gear the Kansas City Chiefs could switch on. And I feel like they could do that at any time. And maybe it's just that they're lazy. I am not 100% sure on offense. As we saw, they were just phenomenal, outstanding, unfathomably great in one quarter. And then the next three quarters, they just they lagged and idled a bit. Yes, they pulled out the win, which is the main objective, and they executed. But as you said, I feel like the play of football has just deteriorated a bit. Yeah, and I've been talking to my friends about this, and some of them are like, Cole, it's just because your fantasy team isn't doing well. But this is the least invested I've ever been personally in an NFL season. Partially, I guess you can blame it on COVID and not having that much of a buildup to the season besides a week of hard knocks. But overall, I mean, I guess you can also blame it on my Jets too for being just absolutely terrible and having nothing to root for on a weekly basis. You know, that could be a big reason as well. What you said stuck out to me. The brand of football has not looked top tier. You look at all these, you know, borderline playoff teams, teams like Arizona and Indianapolis, and they're coming out here, and there are people on Twitter saying, you know, these don't even look like playoff teams. They're barely etching out games. It's ugly. You know, teams like Baltimore and Tampa Bay might make the playoffs, and they look terrible on their own. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it just does not look good, and I could just be going crazy right now. I'm going to love football. I'm going to watch football every day until I die. But this has been one of the worst seasons, COVID aside, just from a football perspective, that I've probably seen in my lifetime. Cole, it sounds to me exactly what you're describing is that you think the NFL should not have added that extra playoff team. Yes, it will bring in more money, more revenue, more profits for the owners and the players, and the whole NFL, but what it sounds like to me is you think those teams just really aren't worthy, and at least not in this current time frame, we're going to see one of those teams make a run to the Super Bowl, and like the Giants have in prior years with wild cards, and we're going to get into the Jets and Giants a little bit later, but as you said, I feel like the quality of football just it's not there this year as it has in prior years. And I think a big part of that could be the preparation or lack thereof. Yeah, I totally agree with that last part in terms of the preparation. But with the wild card, I never had a problem with it. And I actually still don't. I think the concept is awesome. An extra playoff game, love it. Love everything about it. And it adds an extra incentive to get that number one seed as opposed to just one and two. But, you know, the preparation and just the, I mean, Everything goes into the season. I guess you can blame it a bit on COVID and, you know, not even just preseason, but during the week, teams have been barely able to practice and the, not, not, the protocols haven't been, you know, what they usually have seen throughout their careers. So I guess, you know, it is a fair excuse to blame it on stuff like that. But in terms of the brand of football, it hasn't been good. And you see with the quarterbacks, too, in football as well, you know, I go and constantly look to rank the quarterbacks in my head, especially my top five or top ten. And after that first group between Rodgers, Mahomes, and Wilson, I see a massive drop, at least a four and five, and then even bigger drop from six to all the way down to 32 or 40, whatever you want to talk about. Personally, I said this the other day, I think when Trevor Lawrence steps in next year, he has a chance to be a top five quarterback in his first year. I think he's that, that talented, and I just think – the crop of quarterbacks in the NFL really doesn't jump off the page to me, Sammy. You know, Cole, I saw you say that, and I don't know. Trevor Lawrence, top five quarterback in his first two seasons? I mean, a little premature. I mean, I know he's supposed to be the next John Elway, Andrew Luck, Peyton Manning, generational-type quarterback, and he's certainly living up to the hype so far, but... Again, the NFL is a completely different ball game than college, and I think we'll have to wait and see. I definitely think he's going to be special, but that's a lot of pressure putting someone in the top five quarterbacks in the NFL in their first one or two seasons. I mean, let's I mean, Patrick, calm, but Patrick calm the Mahomes was able to do it. Deshaun Watson creeped up to the top five within two or three seasons, and look who's around that range right now. Deshaun Watson, who's been who's been solid this season, but really, you know, hasn't done anything super special in his career thus far. And then what? Josh Allen, who, you know, I'm still skeptical of, but he's had a great season thus far. And Justin Herbert, who's had a great season. But you're telling me Trevor Lawrence can't 
past those three guys within his first one to two years, I mean, I think it's extremely possible in my opinion. I mean, you know I'm a big Josh Allen fan. I think he's a great quarterback. Pretty big Justin Herbert fan as well. Kind of feel like they play in a similar way. Big arm Mm -hmm. and somewhat mobile. And I feel like they're both very good quarterbacks now and in the future. And I guess we'll have to wait and see on Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, but, you know, remember what I'm saying right here. I just think there's a talent deficit at quarterback, and it's just the reality of what we see in the National Football League. So moving on to the NBA landscape right now, the offseason continued to heat up this week, but something, another general conversation we want to start this show with is the debate and concept of stars requesting trades midway through their contract, something we see very often with star players in the NBA as well as the NFL. But we're going to focus on the NBA because, as I always like to say, it's it's the biggest reality TV show in sports, and I'm here more for the offseason than the regular season. I think it's far more entertaining, in my opinion. You know, all the drama behind it, the culture, the relationships, the tampering, I'm all here for it. I think it's fantastic, and it needs to be covered more. But with all these stars coming out over the past few decades, and especially in the past few years, requesting these trades when things all of a sudden start don't start to go well. We This doesn't even have to be an NBA conversation. We can make this a general sports conversation. Why is that so commonly accept, accepted throughout the sports world? Why do these players not get more heat for making these abrupt decisions? Like, you know what? I'm out. I don't like what's going on. I'm the best player on this team. Trade me to a contender. Cool then why don't front offices get any flack if they trade a player? You know, I mean, it's it's such an interesting dynamic. But it, it, it just blows my mind every time. You know, we saw all this example that we're going to give today was, you know, James Harden, who looks to be staying put in Houston now. We'll get into the, the trade the Rockets made in a second. But to come out and be the leader of that team and just be like, you know what? I'm out. I'm done. Go trim me to Brooklyn so I can go play with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. It's a ridiculous concept. It makes no sense to me because he's the leader. He's the best player. He's this franchise guy. The franchise made a commitment to him. They paid him a boatload of money to go be the face of their franchise. And then when things start to go a little south, partially because of his performance, he goes, trade me to another team. I, I don't understand it, Sammy. I don't. And we saw it with Jamal Adams, too, in New York. He's the lead, he's the self-proclaimed leader of the team. He's the best player. And, of course, it's a much different sport in terms of the fact that football, you have a ton of guys in the field versus basketball. You only have 10 in the court at one time. But he comes out and says, you know what? Trade me to a contender. I want to I go there. You know, I, I don't understand the concept of why that's accepted around the, around the sports world. And these players, like, praise him. Like, yeah, free, free my guy. Excuse the... Excuse the bells, as we always say in this show. They're like, yeah, no, he deserves better. But if you're the leader of this team, you're the self-proclaimed best player. Make the impact. Be the change. Why do you have? Why do all these guys have to take the easy way out? It makes no sense to me, Sammy. Cole, I couldn't disagree with you more. I mean, look at an Isaiah Thomas situation with the Celtics. He didn't sign the extension for $200 million that he could have received from the Boston Celtics or something like that. A nice five-year deal that would have set him and many Thomases for life. And instead, he decided to not sign it immediately so they could sign other players and build the team. And they stabbed him in the back, trading him to Cleveland. And nobody really cared. They're like, oh, those Celtics, they're... They're bad trying to improve their team, improving their situation. Well, then why are players getting flack if they want to improve their situation? Their main objective could be to win. And if the team's main objective is the same, why should a team not get any flack but the players taking control of their own future getting flack? Cole, I am more of a pro player type fan. And I would say, especially in the NBA, the players are now the ones who control the league. I think we could agree on that, and they can control the landscape. And if James Harden wants to go to 
of Brooklyn. I don't think he will, obviously, now with this recent John Wall trade. But if he wanted to go to the Nets, he has the power to spread influence and try to push his way to Brooklyn. And if the Nets and Rockets could work something out, great for him. But if a team, let's say, was going to ship James Harden off to, I don't know, the... Chicago Bulls, he's not going to really want to play there. I think we could agree on that. And they have every right to do that, assuming he has no tr- no a no-trade clause. Doesn't have a no-trade clause, which he does not. And he they have every right to do that. But he, they could, and nobody would give them flack. But if James Harden said, trade me to Brooklyn, everybody's going to give him flack, being like, oh, you let down your team. Well, did the Celtics let down Isaiah Thomas as a player and as a valued part of their organization, in your opinion? Look, Sammy, I'm I'm not going to lie. You bring up an extremely interesting and strong argument, probably one of your strongest arguments to one of my debates all year. I mean, it's really making my head spin right now because I see you laughing right now, but I mean, I'm almost trying to be serious. You bring up a really good counterpoint to my argument. You know, you could really see it from both sides. I guess it depends on the time and situation. You know, with Isaiah Thomas, something that most sports fans and NBA fans don't really remember the situation, he was killing it in Boston, absolutely killing it. And he didn't sign that extension. So one argument of the situation could be, oh, well, he could have just signed the extension and he would have been set. But, you know, he decided to take the team approach and then the Celtics took the business approach behind it. No, it's a two-way street in my opinion. So I guess it, it you know differs from situation to situation. You can make a good a, a strong argument if that's the you know the outcome of this conversation that we're having right now, Sammy. It really you can take either side from it when you take an overall viewpoint. You know, again, we'll go back to Jamal Adams. Maybe he saw the light through the tunnel and he and he figured out that the Jets were going to fall apart right before everyone's eyes, and you know maybe they were going to be an zero sixteen team regardless if he was there or not. No. True. People, t- players see things like that, but at the same time, you know, these players call themselves leaders and and you know, star players and want to be the culture change and franchise guys. And then you have James Harden wanting to go play with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, like he's like a you know a fifth grade bandwagoner picking a new team every season. You know, that's that's the that's the vibe I get from it sometimes. Cole, you're right, and it is a two way street, and one of those sides of the street has to be picked, but it shouldn't be just for the team. And I feel like it should be the same for players and the same for teams. It shouldn't be different for one or the other. And I think that's a major problem like right now with perception. And yes, Isaiah Thomas scored 29 points a game, I believe, that season before he could have got that extension. And as we said, he decided to take the team approach and not sign it. But... I mean, there are guys that we're going to talk about in very few minutes that definitely are not going anywhere. Yeah, no. I mean, just to reiterate, I think the consensus of this conversation is that, no, it really comes down to perception. You know, there's not a final outcome on, you know, who's right in this situation. But again, there's two very strong arguments for both sides. So let's move on in this minute to the John Wall-Russell Westbrook swap that happened earlier this week. I believe it was on Tuesday night. Let's hear your thoughts. Who won this trade? Was it Washington or was it Houston trading the veteran point guards? Cole, I thought it honestly was, I don't know if I would describe it as a lose-lose or a win-win, but I feel like it was a net-net per se. I mean, it's going to be interesting how Russell Westbrook is going to play with Bradley Beal as he has clearly stated, Russell Westbrook, that he would like to be the main facilitator and main guy, even if it's not that great a team, that he would rather have the ball than contribute to winning basketball, per se. And Bradley Beal was clearly somewhat fed up with John Wall, and now Bradley Beal was getting the spotlight, getting a lot of touches last season, scoring astronomical amount of points, unlike prior seasons in his career where he was the second option. And... Now we're going to see this with Russell Westbrook. They're both very alpha-type players, I think you could say, and we're going to see how that transpires. And when you look at it from the Houston side, 
James Harden and John Wall. Very interesting dynamic there as well. James Harden is a very on-ball dominant player who could play some off-ball as he's a very good three-point shooter. John Wall, we've seen some practice workouts if he's the shooter we think he could be, but in prior years, he's proved that he's not the greatest of shooters or a point guard, and Morris relies on his athleticism and his playmaking abilities, and that's the thing. They're both great playmakers, Russell Westbrook and John Wall, for themselves and others, but I think John Wall will see if that three-point shot is like we have seen in workout videos, but if it's the John Wall three-point shot of old, I don't think it's going to work out the greatest, but Overall, I would say it was a net-net. When I saw this trade come through, which ironically, I must have completely missed it because I didn't see it until 11 o'clock at night, and I saw it trending on Twitter. I'm like, what happened with Russell Westbrook? I'm like, oh my God, he got traded. But my first thought was, thank goodness the Knicks didn't trade for him because I'm extremely anti-Russell Westbrook, and I'll continue to be, and we'll get into that. You know, I keep teasing this episode, but we'll get into that in a second. Time to mess it up. What? The Knicks still have time to trade for him and mess it up, though. Let's not forget it's the Knicks. No, maybe this new regime, it's not the same old Knicks anymore. But in terms of this trade, I happen to like it for both sides. Maybe a little bit more for Houston because I never thought the Westbrook-Harden pairing was ever going to work out. And I I actually was hysterically laughing when they made that trade – I mean, how many summers ago is that now? Was that summer of 2019 when they traded for Russell Westbrook? That seems like years ago at this point. But when they made that trade, I'm like, why are they trying this again? It didn't work in Oklahoma City. Why do they think it's going to work now when both of them have become more ball-dominant players, two of the most ball-dominant players in all of basketball, and they're going to try and experiment this again? Absolutely not. This is never going to work. John Wall brings an interesting dynamic. As you said before, because he's a bit of an unknown right now. He's coming off two major injuries consecutively. We haven't seen him play since December of 2018, I believe. That's two years ago, which is a very long time. So I'm interested to see how he plays. And I think we've talked about this in a prior show a long time ago. You know, he's one of the most underrated players at basketball when he's playing at his peak. So maybe he's the calmer guy that Harden needs similar to what you know what he had in Chris Paul which seemed to work and they were an exploded hamstring away from you know making the NBA finals and playing LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers but you know it I'm really interested to see how John Wall comes back if he's explosive and he's his old self as we've been hearing lately it could be an amazing pair but then again I'm thinking to myself if he's you know back to that level and Bradley Beal loves him and wants to play with him, why would they trade him? Was it because Wall wanted out? Was it because Washington wanted the guarantee in what they were getting in Westbrook over the unknown and what they were getting with Harden? Uh, Excuse me, what they're getting in Westbrook? There's a lot of factors that go into it, but I think this is actually the best fit possible for a guy like Russell Westbrook because he's not going to score 35 points a game on one of the worst teams in basketball. He gets to play along a co-star in Bradley Beal, and we'll see how they work together. You know, Washington could be an interesting team this year. But the problem is, and I'm, I always talk about this in, in every sport, they're in a low-ceiling situation now because, as we've seen in recent years, Russell Westbrook cannot get done in the playoffs. It's simple, and it will never change. And it's only going to get worse from here because he's already hit his peak, and he's hitting the decline from here on out. You know, I just don't see them as a high-ceiling team, and I don't see much of a future in Washington. You know, this present, it will sell tickets. It will be fun. They'll make the postseason. Him and Beal will score a lot of points. It will be exciting. But going down the road, I mean, Russell Westbrook is not the future of this team. Don't kid yourself. Cole, Russell Westbrook and John Wall, they have something in common. They're both point guards that rely heavy on athleticism, and I think that's going to plague... Russell Westbrook, as he gets older, as he's obviously not the greatest of three-point shooters, we all know. And I think his game is going to start to deteriorate. I think it already has somewhat. And going back to the Harden-Westbrook combination, yes, they were only together for one season and wasn't maybe the greatest combination. I actually thought it was going to work out great as their great childhood friends from Los Angeles, and they played AAU 
and we're in the same circuits together and on the same teams, and we're very close growing up. But I guess uh, fame hardened both of them, I guess you could say hardened. But uh, I feel like Washington, they're in the East, so they have a better chance, Russell Westbrook, of winning more than one playoff series for the first time in years since Kevin Durant left. That's always won one playoff series, and that was in Houston with James Harden. Won none in OKC after Kevin Durant left. And I feel like Kevin Durant, another guy who's obviously had major injuries, there's a lot of past stars or maybe stars still that are coming back from injuries. And I think we're going to have to wait and see how this could have a reflection on the NBA in the East and across the NBA landscape. Yeah, no, it's a. Again, we've been keep saying this throughout this episode. Interesting dynamics, and I'm very excited for this season because there's a lot of storylines coming in, a lot of stars that were injured coming back into play, and it will be a lot of fun. I'm really excited to see what happens. But, you know, The Athletic came out with a report today that Russell Westbrook was the scapegoat for their playoff meltdown. And I didn't find that very surprising because it's true. This guy plagues teams that's all he does he goes in he sells tickets he's a boatload of fun to watch during the game in the regular season and then come playoff time he's the worst player to have on your team he is and he's somewhat of a choker in the playoffs you could say Russell Westbrook and I guess you could say Kevin Durant is not a genius but he maybe made the right decision leaving Russell Westbrook and the OKC Thunder. And we'll see how the Houston Rockets are better off, maybe or maybe not, without Russell Westbrook, as the OKC Thunder seem to be not much worse, if better, with Chris Paul instead of Russell Westbrook, in addition to all those picks they got. So we're going to have to wait and see, and it's going to be a very interesting season. Yep, and before we move on to our baseball talk, we're going to give a quick Weather update and a PSA. So, Sammy, let's start the weather first, and then we'll give our little public service announcement. All right, Cole. So, in Syosset, New York today, it is 46 degrees, partly cloudy. Now it's starting to rain a bit, but partly cloudy all day. And tomorrow, it's supposed to be a high of 46 and a low of 32. Unfortunately, though, with rain. But on Sunday, don't worry, folks, as we're going to have a high of 39 and a low of 28. And it's supposed to be sunny all day. So a great day for football here in the Northeast. And looking forward to it. Cole, back to you. Sammy, that sounds about December for me. So right now we'll have a quick PSA about wisdom teeth, and then we'll be right back. Pain or no pain, your wisdom teeth should be checked every year. Some wisdom teeth can become impacted, which can lead to cysts, tooth decay, and gum disease. Wisdom teeth can cause crowding, painfully damaging adjacent teeth. Not all wisdom teeth need to be removed, but they all do need to be monitored by an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. Find a surgeon near you for a complete examination at myoms.org. And we're back on WKWZ 88.5 Syosset. I'm Cole Nevins. I'm alongside Sammy Sherry. We're talking sports every Friday and this Friday. So Sammy's going to take the reins on this segment right here. I'll add a few comments. He's holding this baseball right now back at home virtually. And we're going to talk about some of the non-tendered players and their best fits. So Sammy, take it away. sounds good. And... Obviously, we had the tender and non-tenders, some surprises, some guys we thought could get tender didn't, like Gary Sanchez with the Yankees. I'm very glad they will be keeping him on the roster. guy like Chris Bryant on the Cubs will stay on the roster, but for the Cubs, Kyle Schwarber was non-tendered. Has obviously not been the same since that injury, still could rake from behind the plate, never really found a position, though, that he could call home. Maybe an American League team would be better suited for him as a DH. Maybe the Twins, many people have mentioned. Maybe he'll go to the Yankees. I've always been a fan of Kyle Schwarber. And another guy, David Dahl, a former All-Star. Somewhat injury-prone, though, as he's, even in that All-Star season, only played 100 games. The Rockies non-tendered him. We'll see where he could go. And 
Eddie Rosario on the Twins, uh, or formerly on the Twins. Maybe not a guy you want throughout your lineup, but a guy who could definitely utility and play maybe every day, maybe a few times, maybe part-time, maybe full-time. You have to see your roster and the adjustments you could make, but definitely a solid infielder. And Archie Bradley, very good reliever. Every team could use a great reliever. Obviously, the reliever market has been flooded somewhat this season with teams trying to cut costs a bit after last season's uh, somewhat financial, I don't want to call it hardship, but somewhat of a deficit. And Archie Bradley will increase the already flooded free agent market for relievers, and we'll see where he could possibly land, maybe with a team like the Mets, who want to solidify that bullpen maybe a little more under their new owner. Steve Cohen, maybe the Yankees always could use another reliever. Maybe the Blue Jays want to keep solidifying their chances. I could also see Kyle Schwarber possible destination with the Blue Jays as well, as I think they're going to be very big spenders this offseason, as their young core is on a very cheap basis so far as they've not really reached arbitration. Biggio, Bichette, and Guerrero. And I think, obviously, they saw Hunjin Ryu, last season for a lot of money, but I think they're going to continue building in Toronto. And I think it's going to be an interesting free agency period. And those are just some of the best guys to get non-tendered that I think are going to be very productive next season and in the future on their former teams. Obviously you've seen David Ortiz go on to the hall of fame from being a non-tendered guy. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, you brought up a very interesting point about, you know, the economic deficits that some of these teams face. And, you know, my Mets don't have to worry about that now. They actually got bought out at the perfect time. But a team in their division, the Philadelphia Phillies, I read, were had to lay off, I think, almost hundreds of employees to gain funds back because they lost a ton of money from not being able to play. And that's going to be the case for a lot of teams, and not just baseball, but all of sports going forward. And we'll have to see how they deal with that as well. I mean, it's one of the unfortunate fallouts from covid but it's going to test the real management of these teams. So with a team like Philadelphia, a team that's been on the decl- on the decline as of late and really needs that boost, you know, this is the worst case scenario for them. So we'll have to see what happens down in Philadelphia. But in terms of the rest of the baseball, it should be an interesting period with all these non-tendered players, and we'll see what my Mets do with um, their new ownership and their new management and your Yankees, who are always bound to make a splash as well. Indeed, Cole, going to be an interesting offseason and season for baseball as it's already December, so February spring training will be upon us before we know it. Yeah, it's going to be weird not having a proper, you know, or maybe we'll have the proper spring training, but, you know, the one with all the fans and the interactions, it doesn't look like that's going to happen this year, unfortunately. Have you been down for spring training before? I have indeed. I've been to where... The Mets are in Port St. Lucie. I've been to Jupiter, Florida. I have actually never seen the Yankees play in Tampa. I have been there, but not when they've had spring training. So hopefully someday I could see that maybe in the future. Obviously not this season, most likely. But we'll have to wait and see spring training. It's a very fun experience. I know you have gone to, I believe, Port St. Lucie a few times and uh, seen the Mets there. So... It's going to be interesting. Yeah, I went a while back when I was younger to Port St. Lucie to go see my Mets play. And I think I also went to see the Pirates play in Bradenton. And the story I always tell was, if you remember a while back in, um, I think it was Mariano Rivera's last season. And they went back, um, he's from Panama, correct? Is that where he's from? So they went back to Panama to go play yes, like a correct. like a a final send-off series for Rivera. And, of course, that was the one weekend I was down in Florida to go watch um, spring training. So I watched pretty much the Yankees' third team play in, uh, in Florida while the rest of the starters were out there with Rivera. So that was unfortunate. But the one with the Mets was fun. But I always say with spring training, you know, you see all these videos out there of all the players being super interactive and all the fun. And I went down there, and it could have just been me. But... Those players do the classic. They walk by, they sign a few article uh, articles, they sign a few autographs without a smile on their face, and they walk away. It's one of those things like, come on, man, you got all these kids there. 
<laughs> how, I mean, how much do these guys have to do before a game? And you go in and you sign a few autographs and you make a few kids' days. Or maybe even to make their week. But, you know, some of these players happen to be a little bit selfish. I'll never understand that. But then there's guys like Curtis Granderson who come out time after time and are always missing the smile on his face and the glove on his head, his trademark thing. And he's the man when he comes out and signs autographs. But then there's other players who I'm like, come on, man. You know, you see all these kids now, now, now from, a, I guess, more of a young adult standpoint. And you see all these kids that, just like how we used to be, sitting at the front with their, with their baseballs over the fence. I mean, we haven't seen that in a while because of COVID, obviously. I hate to, you know, put salt in the wound. But it's just one of those things, you know. I always think it's nice when players go over and, and sign autographs. It takes a little bit, a few seconds out of their day, and the kid can go and, you know, have that memory forever. But, you know, it's just one of those things where, like, come on, guys, just step up. <laughs> Very true. I mean, I have had some interactions with uh, players and even broadcasters. When I went to a Yankee game, I saw John Sterling, and a lot of fans saw him, and he wouldn't even give anybody the light of day, so he just walked right by. So, you know, it's it's not their job, though, to sign autographs. I mean, if you look at it from their perspective, they have no obligation, and they get compensated to sign autographs at other conventions and everything. So when you look at it that way, I mean – they maybe want to increase the value of their autographs as there's less in circulation. So if you look at it from a business perspective, I feel like, I mean, yes, it does make your day, week, year, month, etc. If they, a player that you, your favorite player who you've been dreaming about uh, being at night, just swinging with your arms and, uh, or throwing and they don't sign an autograph, but if they do, that could be a great experience. But you know what? It is what it is. Yeah, no, I've had a similar interaction. I actually ran into Jim Nance at um, the Michigan Big Ten Championship a few years back. He, I was sitting near courtside at Madison Square Garden, and they were doing the broadcast literally three rows in front of us, which was the coolest thing to see them. And then there was, you know, there was Grant Hill who was there, who was, oh, he was the worst. He wouldn't acknowledge anyone who was trying to yell at him. He took one picture. I don't even think he was smiling in it with us. And I was like, classic Grant Hill. But um, <laughs> uh, with Jim Nance, I went up to him. And there's actually a video of me talking to him. And it was the nicest thing. He went up. He shook my hand. He talked to me. I told him about myself. It was an awesome experience. I'll never forget that. But then there's you know, there's guys like Grant Hill who were there. And they wanted no part of saying hi to anyone. So, you know, there's two types of people in this world. But, you know, as an athlete, maybe you want players to, and fans to have a a nicer perception of you. So when you go out and you have a bad day, they're like, you know what? Curtis Granison, you know, he's a good guy. So let's not, you know, let's come some slack. Let's not get too hard on him. Whereas, you know, you have a guy who doesn't sign a single autograph and you're like, well, A, he's not a great guy and B, he sucks at baseball. So <laughs> then you get a double negative there. But enough with signing autographs, you know. Hopefully we get back to that soon. And we're going to go back to New York sports for a second. It's 4.45 right now. 15 minutes left in the show and we're going to stick with football on the gridiron for the rest of the time here and we're going to talk about the state of New York quarterbacks starting with Sam Darnold and the Jets so a report came out yesterday or a quote meanwhile um, Adam Gase came out and finally admitted that he failed Sam Darnold something that people have been talking about for over a year now that Gase wasn't able to do what he was brought to... The one job he was brought to New York to do was to develop Sam Darnold. And all Sam Darnold has done has regressed like none other. I mean, when have you ever seen a quarterback, let alone an athlete, regress from his rookie year all the way down to the rock-bottom point where he is right now in year in only year three? And Gase, who knows he's going to get fired after the season, but I guess he's getting strategically kept along for the ride to secure that 0-16 season. If any of the Jets are listening right now, do not screw it up. Please do not screw up this 0-16 year. You don't understand. None of you guys are going to be on the team anyway next year, so you might as well just lose all the games. But I thought it was a great decision to keep Gase because if they fired him, it would have prompted the team to maybe get inspired to win the game. Maybe they're just so terrible that it wouldn't even happen. But, you know, Gase is going to secure an 0-16 season, but he also secured the downfall of Sam Darnold. So going back to Darnold looking forward, what's your outlook on him? You know, can you see Darnold carving out a career as a starting quarterback?
based on, you know, the perform. I think he's gone 120 straight passes without a touchdown in his last co- in his last several games. Granted that good. he was coming off the injury, but you know, I've been talking about it myself as well as Jets fans. You know, just wait until he gets his weapons back. He hasn't played with starting receivers all season, and he finally did against Miami. Granted that they're a good secondary, but he played terrible once again. So before I get into my take on it, what's your take on Sam Darnold? Break it all, break it all down for us. Cole, we obviously talked about this a few episodes ago, but I actually do not think Sam Darnold, from what I've seen, is going to be a productive starting quarterback in the NFL, in New York, or anywhere. And referring back to Adam Gase quickly, will he get fired this offseason? I mean, I'm sh- I know all you Jet fans hope he will, but... I feel like there's a chance he won't as Woody Johnson is now coming Come back from what, his what? role in this dude, current dude. administration from Sammy, Great Sammy, Britain. Sammy, Sammy. You, did you really just th- say that Adam Gase might not get fired? I did. I That's wouldn't ludicrous. be surprised if the Johnsons somehow, because now Woody will be taking Then he'd be blackmailing the them, bro. He will be coming back from his England uh, ambassador post in this administration. So I feel I like mean, Adam Gase may... He may stay on with the team. I mean, as hurtful as that may be to hear, he may. And going back to Sam Darnold, though, obviously we mentioned the 49ers, Colts, some possible destinations for him, maybe the Steelers after Big Ben's reign per se. But I feel like when you look at it, I feel like he turns the ball over way too much and just isn't that great at football. I mean, does he do anything that great, honestly? Name one thing that he does where you could say, oh, my, he does that, that His great. arm like talent. When you look at I a guy get... like Justin Herbert, great arm. Excuse me, I'll give you an answer right now. His arm talent. His arm talent is superb. He has the, he has the potential to take that next step. We have seen plenty of glimpses over the past three seasons of Sam Darnold making throws that not many quarterbacks could make. No, oh, I don't make, know he what makes, you're seeing, but I ain't seeing that. I'll, I'll send you all those highlight clips. Even from this season, is his worst one so far. He's made some phenomenal plays, and time after time, they're they're eye-opening plays. These aren't throws that Baker Mayfield are making. You know, he looks terrible out there with Cleveland. He looks underwhelming and a low-ceiling player. But in terms of Sam Darnold, you know, what I've been saying is that he was going to go to a team that would put him in the starting role right away. But I think what he needs, because... I think his biggest problem right now is the mental side, not the physical side. He looks destroyed right now. He looks beat up from a mental perspective. And it's hard to dig out players from that state and keep them on the same team. So what I suggest for Darnold is that he's willing to go and be the backup for a veteran quarterback for potentially a year. You give an example, like Pittsburgh would be a great move for him, or maybe goes to Indianapolis and sits behind Phillip Rivers for a year. Things like that could be very interesting for Sam Darnold, and I would not be surprised if that happened regardless, but his value is deteriorating, and that's not good. I hope he really steps up in these last few games for the sake of getting better compensation when we eventually trade him, but he's looking like a third or fourth round pick value right now, when he he's inevitably going to be traded, and that's a lot worse than what we thought probably one or two months ago when he had first and second round value. I never thought he had first or second round value. Maybe second or third, now more like four or five, I would say. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but you know, talk about a guy who really just needs a change of scenery, and I think Jets fans have finally you know gotten over their love for Sam Darnold, but we'll have to see what happens with him. But... No, moving on to the other locker room in the Meadowlands, we have Daniel Jones, the starting quarterback, not for this week, though, because he's injured. He's actually doubtful for this week of the New York football giants. What's your outlook on him? It's a kind of confusing situation with uh, Daniel Jones down in Jersey. You know, Cole, I never liked Daniel Jones. I have made that clear on this show. Never have been a fan of him. And even when he was drafted out of Duke, he was not worthy of that sixth overall pick. I thought it then. I think it now. And I don't think he's really proven anything to change that. I mean, he should have been a late first rounder, more like a second rounder at best, maybe even a late second rounder as some mock drafts predicted he would be. But I feel like when you look at it, Dave Gettleman obviously 
is still somewhat attached. And I feel like when you look at it, the whole Giants organization may just not be the greatest at this moment. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. You know, with Daniel Jones, I was never a huge fan right off the bat. And in terms of his Giants career thus far, nothing's really popped off the page for me in terms of Daniel Jones. You know, he's made a he's made a few good throws and he's had a few, you know, highlight runs. You know, they call him Vanilla Vic now. But you know, these Giants fans talk about him Works. like the second they call like the second coming of like Patrick Mahomes or something. And he's he's so far from it. I mean, people call Jets fans crazy for thinking Darnold was a good quarterback, but you know, Daniel Jones doesn't look much better either. And it's interesting because, you know, some argue was talking to one fan the other day, and he was like, you know, put him in the best case scenario, and we'll see what happens. You know, you give him a few more good receivers, and you bulk up the offensive line. And I'll give him this. He hasn't really gotten a chance to play with Saquon that much. You know, they've barely played together. I think they played like four or five games together thus far, which is unfortunate because, you know, it would open up a lot of spaces in the running game, especially with Daniel Jones' ability. So if I'm the Giants... I don't think they need a quarterback immediately. So that's the difference right now. I think they, you know, maybe they could want one in a year or two, but they don't need to move on from Jones right now. I think what they should do is focus on building the team right now. And if Jones completely implodes or is extremely underwhelming in year three, similar to like what we're seeing with Darnold right now, then you can move on. But if I'm the Giants right now, I'm keeping Daniel Jones around. Maybe he steps up once again in his third season. He gets Saquon back in the mix. They continue to bulk up the offensive line with it. Maybe they'll have a bit of a high pick. You know, there's some some decent options in the draft. And, you know, maybe they'll build the team around him a little bit. But we'll see what happens with Daniel Jones. But staying on the gridiron, we have our weekly preview. And we're already up to week 13. So let's go with a quick record update. Myself. Um, 19 and 18. I went four and three last and week 11. We skipped last week. We actually, we actually both took a bye week last week. I think both of our teams, especially Sammy's team, you know, my team's middling around 500 right now. We're doing pretty well, but Sammy's team, you know, they needed a motivational talk. He had to get, you know, his coach Taylor on this from Friday Night Lights. He had to go and give some motivational stuff to his his betting team right now because they have been abysmal lately. As Sammy sits. At eleven twenty-five and one, I think this is his best week so far. He went three and four. You know what did you tell your team this week, Sammy? You know, Cole, I said just keep ch- chipping at the bit, and eventually, <laughs> if you keep chipping, you're gonna chip for. Eventually, if you keep chipping at pirate, you're gonna get to that gold. So just waiting, and I feel like I'm. I'm on the rise. I feel like I'm about to hit that gold, and we'll see if I could hit that this week. Maybe with some yeah. mix of some platinum you, I could find also. You, you're picking games like the Sunday Night Football crew, and that's something I'll never understand. They have a 50-50 chance of getting every game right, and I look at the graphics before the game, and half the guys have losing records. It's unbelievable. You know, What are the odds of that? But and and again, they always just pick the favorite anyway, so it's kind of annoying to watch anyway. Like I always feel like those graphics and every single pick is the same for Sunday Night Football. But you know, my week eleven, uh, the Jets had a backdoor cover on uh, the Chargers minus eight, as the Chargers had a a safety at the end of the game that you know made it a six point game instead of an eight point game after being up by three scores. So that fell apart for me. And then the Packers choked against Indianapolis. So I almost had two wins. That was almost a 6-1 and one week for Cole. Very close, but, you know, that's how this game works. So let's go. We have five minutes left. Games of the week, number one, Browns at Titans. Who are you picking, Sam? You know, I'm a big fan of the dog pound Browns, but I got to take the Titans in this one. It's at Tennessee, and I feel like Derrick Henry, obviously he's a great, court, uh, great running back, and Ryan Tannehill, I know we had some discussions about him previously, and I wasn't a huge fan of him, but I've somewhat gone on to the bandwagon of being a true believer in Ryan Tannehill, honestly. How about you, I love to hear that. I love to hear that. And I'm going with the Titans as well. You know, the Browns are one of the most overrated teams in football right now. I don't think they have a win against a single team with an over 500 record this season. And they haven't impressed me at all. 
You know, the running game looks great with Chubb and Hunt. You know, the defense looks very solid as well. The offensive line is improved. But then there's Baker Mayfield, who his his poor performance has been masked by the really good performance by the rest of his team. So, you know, Browns fans could keep dreaming about Baker Mayfield, but I just don't think he's the future answer at quarterback. But in the present right now, I'm taking Tennessee to win this game. Game number two, Rams at the Arizona Cardinals. Who are you taking in this one, my man? Cole, in this one, you know I'm a big fan of Kyler Murray. Now they're going to have some company at that stadium. We're going to have the 49ers game in a little later as they're playing in Arizona as well this weekend for the foreseeable future as uh, San Francisco or Santa Clara, as they call it. Doesn't want the 49ers playing there. But in this one, Rams at Cardinals. Give me the Arizona Cardinals, Kyler Murray, DeAndre Hopkins. I love that team. Cliff Kingsbury, Jerry's still out on him, in my opinion, and that air raid offense. But give me Arizona. I'm riding the momentum on my Los Angeles Rams. I'm going to take them in this week as well. And, you know, it adds a little fun because it's not fun to always pick the same teams in every game. And our third game of the week, which I expect us to have a different opinion on, the Bills at the 49ers slash Arizona. So the Arizona 49ers. Um, who are you taking in this one? Cole, I think everybody listening to us knows who I'm taking, including you. Obviously, I'm taking the Buffalo Bills. Josh Allen, Bills Mafia, <laughs> going to ride high again. Everybody says, I think, oh, Josh I, hold Allen. Hold on, hold on. I think you've not seen. not that great a team. Sam, I think but you've said that line on every show. Teams, unlike the Browns. I think you've said that line every show. Josh Allen, Bills Mafia. I think like every, I think they're it's not just called the, they're not called the Buffalo Bills. It's you know it's it's the Buffalo Bills, Josh Allen, Bills Mafia. It's like um, a Chris Berman. He goes, I should uh, trademark it. Yeah, <laughs> no one gets the wagons going like the Buffalo Bills, but um, you know, I'm taking uh, the 49ers in this game. I like the momentum that they have. I know this is a tough pick right now. You know, Buffalo has looked good, but, you know, those cross-country games could get kind of tricky. And I like how the 49ers are looking right now. They're kind of coming back to form. So I'm going to take them this week. Screw it. Let's have fun with it. Quick reaction, Cole, to that. Cross-country games don't really affect the team going west, per se, as it does the team coming east if it's a West Coast team playing a 1 o'clock game on the East Coast. And this is also a night game, so... I feel like that time factor isn't going to be a very big difference. And also, another analysis on that uh, Arizona Rams game. I obviously chose Week 11, the Rams, to lose, and I got burnt in that one as you took the Rams to win and you got the rewards. But uh, now I'm going to run through my lock of the weeks. For my three locks, I'm going to have two double-ups, the Rams and Cardinals. I will obviously be taking the Cardinals with the points as well. As the Rams are a three-point favorite, give me the Cardinals with the points. Another double-up. The 49ers are a favorite by one. And in that game, I will be taking the Bills with the points again. And Washington at the Steelers, I will be taking the Steelers to cover with a spread of one touchdown, seven points. And those are my locks of the week, Cole. What about you? I'm taking... (laughs) I guess I didn't learn my lesson. I'm going to still take these big spreads. Seattle minus 10.5 against the Daniel Jones-less Giants. I mean, you know, Seattle could probably drop 30 to 40 points on them, and it doesn't look like the Giants are going to score many points. I like this pick a lot. Indianapolis minus 3.5 versus Houston. Now without Will Fuller because he's an idiot and he takes steroids. So Indianapolis can roll through that game, win by four points at least. And then Kansas City minus 14 against the Denver Broncos. Screw it. Why not? They're a much better football team than them. I can see Denver winning this game. Uh, Denver. I can see Kansas City winning this game by three touchdowns. So we'll put it at that. Quick thing, Cole, in that Kansas City game. I was looking at that as well. But as we talked about at the beginning of our show, Kansas City, they could put a switch on like they did last week against Tampa. And then they could just go three quarters of idle so and make it close as they've had some close wins. Wins nonetheless, but close. And 14-point spread, I would stay away from that. But well, we're going to run with we'll it on this one. See. So 5 o'clock on the dot. That's it for this show today. I was Cole Nevins. That was Sammy Sherry. That's all we got one. for today, friends and family.
And we will see you, hopefully, next week. Thank you and have a fantastic night and weekend. At this time, WKWZ, Syosset's community radio station, ends its broadcast day. Good. WKWZ operates on an assigned frequency modulated carrier wave of 88.5 megahertz, channel 203, with an effective radiated power of 125 watts. WKWZ is licensed by the Federal Communications Commission with offices and studios located at 70 Southwoods Road in Syosset. WKWZ is owned and operated by the Syosset Central School District and is staffed and managed by the students and faculty of Syosset High School. Comments regarding WKWZ programming should be directed in writing to the manager, WKWZ FM, 70 Southwoods Road, Syosset, New York, 11791.